Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to find John chapter 11. All right, we are kicking off a new series today. Uh, and this series is actually going to lead us all the way up to Easter. And you might be thinking, wow, that's a really long series. But you may not just be aware of how close Easter is. All right, Easter is March 31st this year. Uh, next year, it is April 20th. Like, it is crazy how much it swings. Um, and so that's coming up fast, which for those of you that are like, already ready for winter to be done. Like Easter is pretty close. That can get you excited, all right? Um, but we are going to follow some of the events uh, that lead up to the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, and look at those as we are leading to Easter. So we are calling this series The Beginning of the End. Okay, the beginning of the end. The reason for that is we are jumping in um, sort of where everything kind of takes a turn in Jesus' ministry. He goes from traveling uh, the area, teaching, healing, confronting spirits, all sorts of different things. And now he sets his sights on Jerusalem and what is coming in his future. This is, in a way, this is sort of like his end game that is happening. And depending on which gospel account you're reading, uh, the order of how these things happen changes a little bit um, because each author of the Gospels, I don't know if everyone knows this, uh, they wrote it with a very specific intention and that's not necessarily to give a perfect historical chronological event of how everything happened. Um, these are almost kind of, Pastor Aaron's in, uh, going back to school right now and she's in speech class. These are like persuasive speeches that they're doing, trying to present that he is the Messiah. And so we are going to do our best to kind of follow this chronologically. Uh, the other thing that we're going to do is we, we're going to skip over some of the more common stories um, that we've done. You know, things like the triumphal entry, um, Passover. We, just a couple years ago, we did a series called The Final Days. Uh, and that was only a couple weeks before Easter. And we talked about those. You can go back and watch those if you want. Uh, you even, as I talk about Passover, get to watch me take a massive bite of just horseradish. Like straight horseradish. And then my eyes just water straight for like a minute as I try and continue with a sermon. Because we are talking about the bitter herb that's part of Passover. And So yeah, go back, watch that. You can laugh about it. Um, it was a great time. All right, but this week we are, we're jumping into this. And, and I started looking at like, I don't know if any of you guys remember English class, like the, the structure of a story, like how things are told with different um, plots and, and acts and things like that. And uh, there's something that's called uh, Freytag's Pyramid. All right, and here's what it is. Uh, there's going to be a pyramid kind of here behind me. It's a way of telling a story. It's a structure that it's written in. Okay, and you have this starting exposition. This is talking about all the background. This is giving all the like layer stuff that you need, the basic information, character development, all these things. Okay, then uh, you have what's called the inciting incident. And this starts the rising action. So essentially, in almost every movie, every story has some type of storyline like this. Things are going along, something happens, and now the tension begins to just build, 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 which brings you to the climax of the story, and then you have the falling action and the resolution, all right? And so uh, this is kind of how a basic story would go. Now the Bible, uh, the authors weren't necessarily trying to follow anything like this, um, but at the same time, we can see this happening, okay? And the, the climax of the Gospels is obviously the, the death, but more so the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so what we are looking at in this series is essentially what I would call the rising action. But I didn't like that for a series title, so we went with something else. But this is the rising action. Everything that we're going over for the next few weeks is everything that's building up. 
And today, where we are going to start is basically at what is the inciting incident, the thing that really turns the whole story into a new direction, the, the, the piece that tells the religious leaders, they gather and they say, we, we need to kill Jesus. And that's what this event is. And so that is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is John 11. All right. And when this happens, the leaders say, he's too dangerous. We need him gone. And they begin to plan how to do it. All right, so let's be ready. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually not going to have a stand and read this morning. Uh, we're going to kind of read the story as we go because we're going through a big chunk of the chapter. Um, but I do want to just kind of open in prayer right now uh, before we move on with the rest of the message. So, uh, God, this morning we just ask that, Lord, if this is the first time we've heard this story, if this is the 1,000th time that we've heard this story, God, that this would be something that is new and fresh for us, that we would be challenged in a new way, Lord, and that we would just begin to um, see things through your lens, your perspective, and how we can apply that to our lives. God, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so remember, for the most part, Jesus has been traveling uh, and staying under the radar. You know, if you, if you think about a lot of his ministry, he's often telling people, uh, hey, don't say anything about this, don't, don't talk about this. Um, and, but then something happens prior to the story of Lazarus where the, the leaders start to get a little mad. And you maybe remember it, he heals a blind guy. Um, and then this guy gets called in by the religious leaders um, because everybody's talking about it. They've known him and he's been blind since birth. And they're like, what happened to you? What's going on? And he's like answering their questions. And they call in the parents and they're like, is this really your son? Was he really born blind? And then they call him back in and he just starts getting snarky at this point. He's like, you guys are asking so much about Jesus. Sounds like you want to be his followers. To which they don't take kindly to that. So things are, things are stirred a little bit right now. That's kind of the background of this. Okay, in this passage, we're going to hear about Mary and Martha. We see them in the, in the book of Luke. That's kind of the, the one is working hard. The other one's sitting at Jesus' feet. All right, I'm going to read this morning from the NIV. Uh, we usually will read from the New Living Translation. Uh, there is, there's a phrase they keep using in this story in New Living that I think is poorly translated. They keep saying that Jesus is angry where pretty much all the other translations say that he's just very stirred and moved. Um, and I think angry just serves as like a distraction for us. Like, why is he angry about this? So I'm going to read out of uh, New International Version this morning. So I'm starting chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the, ones, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no sight. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. 
So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, and I, I love this, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Just the optimist, Thomas. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I love that, that part. There's so much happening here. Um, have you ever been in a spot where you are praying for something? Uh, and maybe it's been weeks, months, maybe it's been years that you have been praying for something. And you pray and pray and it seems like nothing is happening. Uh, or maybe you have all these opportunities, but um, you're trying to pray, God, what am I supposed to do with these different opportunities? And you just can't find peace in any of those. Uh, these moments, I know in my life, like they can be so hard, so incredibly hard. Um, but for many of them, if not all of them, like something ends up happening, something comes through, and all of a sudden, I see how God was working in the situation. All right, I see how his hand was moving. I see why those things didn't pan out for me. And in hindsight, um, it makes sense. But in that moment, it doesn't make me feel any less lost or confused as to why things aren't happening the way I think they should. I've had this with jobs, with housing, with goals in life, uh, so many times. And I, I think this, honestly, this happens more often in my life than me praying for something and it just perfectly, magically, by God's power, happens right there. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. It does, and it's amazing when it does. But there are so many times where God is working and I just have to kind of take a step back and be able to watch him work. And I know this is the case for people in this room. I know there are people in this room that we are praying over housing situations for you. We are praying over job situations for you. We are praying over these things. And you're like, God, why isn't this happening? Why isn't this moving forward? All right, but it's, here's the hard thing. God's ways aren't ours. And his timing isn't ours. And we see this so clearly in verse 6 here. Jesus receives an emergency message, a cry for help from some close friends. And he just stayed where he was. He doesn't send him a message being like, hey, I got the message. Don't worry. Things are in the works. He doesn't do that. He actually doesn't even tell the disciples, like, oh, hey, by the way, this is going on. Until a little later, he's like, all right, let's go. Here's why we're leaving. And this may be one of the hardest things, I think, for us to grasp and to actually even accept about God. That his ways aren't our ways. And his timing is not our timing. And after two days, he says, let's go. And that's confusing for the disciples because they say, listen, like, you're probably going to get killed. If we wanted to go for Lazarus, we should have left two days ago. Now, it, there doesn't really seem to be as much of a point. If he really is sick, I don't know what's going to happen. If he's only sleeping, he's going to get better. Two days later, why are you going to this place that's probably going to kill you anyways? And so they're confused. Jesus responds with this kind of weird little saying about walking in daylight or, or, or nighttime. Can you just imagine being a disciple and how many times, how many times did the disciples, after Jesus says something, like just look at each other and like catch each other's eyes and be like, did you understand that? Okay, I thought I was the only one. Like that, you know, afterwards, they're like Jesus walks away and they're all like, okay, anybody got what he's trying to say here? Anyone know the plan? Because I'm pretty sure we're all just going to die right now. And there's something about the light and the dark. And I don't know what's happening. And like, Jesus does this all the time with them. Seems like they, 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 like the whole thing is probably confusing from their standpoint. 
Because then he says, oh, and Lazarus is sleeping. And they're like, great, don't wake him up. Like, just let him sleep. So this is, this whole beginning portion here is just this, like, confusing, Jesus, what, what is your timing here? What is the reason for this? And not being able to see it in the moment. All right, move on. I'm going to go to verse 17 here. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Jerusalem. Uh, sorry, and many, many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. So by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Uh, and and we, we get to see this picture of people grieving um, and that that's happening. But I, I want to focus on one thing that Martha says. And in some of the translations, they phrase it uh, a little bit differently. But here, she, she kind of says this thing to him when Jesus shows up. If you had been here. Some of the other translations say, if only. If only you had been here. Jesus, if only you had done this, if only this had happened, then things would be different. When was the last time you said the words, if only? Like in your life, you have a situation that happens, and you say, man, if only this. If only this event had happened, or this event hadn't happened. If only it didn't happen that way. If only that decision wasn't made. If only fill in the blank. And if only is this weird sort of wishing for something that, that isn't there and, and can't happen. One commentator said it this way as I was kind of reading through this. He said it's, it's kind of a nostalgia, not for the past as it was, but for the present that could have been. If only the past had just been a little bit different. Like all nostalgia, it's a bitter, sweet feeling, caressing the moment that might have been while knowing it's all fantasy. And Martha, and we're going to see Mary as well, is, is playing this over and over in their heads. Jesus, if, if only you had come when we called you. Jesus, we, we know that you've healed people from not even coming. If, if only you would have said the word. If only you were here. And Jesus kind of responds with this, he'll rise again. And I, and I think often when I read this, I often thought that Jesus is speaking to Martha about what is about to happen. That's, that's often how I have read this spot. But I think what's happening here is he's almost kind of calling her to think about what she believes in. I think there's kind of two things. He's saying this statement, he's going to rise again, and it's carrying multiple meanings. And Martha, right away, she kind of jumps like, yeah, no, I get it. We believe in the resurrection, you know, new heavens, new earth, resurrection's going to happen. Uh, yes, he'll rise again. And thinking about that future is actually not very comforting for her. Like, you can see that in her flat response of verse 24, just being like, yeah, I know that. 
But in that moment, it's not really helping her. And, and I think that what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting Martha to see what would happen if the future actually comes crashing into the present right now. This future hope that you have is colliding with your present reality and grief that's going on. The future of the new heavens and new earth, the future of the kingdom of God, the the eternal life living that is going to happen is brought crashing into your present reality. And this is so much of what the New Testament is and what Jesus' ministry is. Everywhere he goes, every time there's a healing, every time there's a miracle, that is the future coming crashing into the present in a way that people did not expect it to. And that can happen when the Messiah, when Jesus is part of the situation. And so what he's doing here, he's inviting and challenging Martha to trade her if-only statement for an if-Jesus statement. Trade if only you had been here for if Jesus is here now, then everything can be changed. And that is still our challenge today. Don't approach things as if-only, but instead as if Jesus is part of this, then what could happen? What could this look like? So this is Martha's interaction. We're going to move on. I want to look at Mary's interaction that happens next. Uh, it says, and after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Jesus reached the place, or when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So they're remembering the thing that Jesus had just previously done. Healing the man of his blindness. They're saying, why, why couldn't he have done something similar here? Martha is this busy, hardworking, seems a little more stern, kind of task-oriented person. Mary seems to be a little more emotionally in tune. She is drawn to people more than she is tasks. Uh, and I love here, she, she's grieving. She's feeling the loss of her brother. She isn't hiding it or trying to cover it up in any way. She has others who are grieving with her. Grief is so incredibly important. Being able to express grief is incredibly important. And don't ever apologize or be embarrassed for grieving. Our world is like so incredibly, or I'll put it this way, our society, our culture in America, we are so unhealthy when it comes to grief. There's like no room for it. And if you emotionally respond to grief, it's only because you aren't strong enough to hold it together. That, that, that's what we think. And it's just such an unhealthy approach. But grief is natural and it's healthy. The Apostle Paul says we don't grieve in the same way as the rest of the world. 
All right, that doesn't mean we don't grieve. It just means we grieve with hope. But hopeful grief is still grief, and it can still be incredibly bitter. And the picture here, the thing that I want us to hone in on this little section, is that Jesus, he doesn't respond to, to Mary the way he does Martha. He knows that every one of us is different and that we need a different response. Our personalities are, are different. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, Mary, knock it off, stop grieving, everything's going to be fine. Instead, he, he meets her where she's at. He joins in with the grief. <clears throat> and this is a verse, verse 35, that I, as a kid I loved. Because if we needed to memorize verses, we could just say, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. There it is. You know, if, if you ever have homework, you know, as a kid in Sunday school, like you need to memorize one verse this week. That was always our go-to. <clears throat> but can we, can we just appreciate for a moment that modern translators who put in chapters and verses, because that's not how it was originally written, that modern translators slowed down enough and gave this statement, this two-word statement, its own verse. That it carried that much weight that these two words, there's, there, I don't think there's anywhere else where there's a verse that's just two words. That it carries that much weight that they would, they would distinguish it like that. Jesus wept. The Messiah, the Savior, felt emotions to losing someone he loved and he responded emotionally. The creator of every single person and every single thing weeps at the grave of his friend. You know, they, he asks them, where have you put the body? And they say, come and see. And I think we, we still have that same call to us today where Jesus is saying, hey, what, what's going on in your life? And our response just needs to be, come and see. Let me show you to the place of my deepest grief and sorrow. Let me walk you there. And Jesus just meets in that moment and says, hey, let me just sit with you in grief. And it is honestly one of the most beautiful pictures that I think we have of him. So often our if-only moments come in the midst of our greatest grief. Our doubts grow in the midst of grief. Our pain increases in the midst of grief. Our loneliness compounds in the midst of grief, especially if we aren't doing it in a healthy way. And for me, when I read this whole story, this point stands out more than anything else, that, that Jesus just comes and grieves with her. All right, last section, Jesus goes to the tomb. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. It's interesting that they call her the sister of the dead man. That's, that's got to be intentional there. By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Such a, it's such a unique story. 
I mean, think of how many other people died during Jesus' ministry that he didn't go and do this with. Think of how many tombs were still filled. And, and that's, again, it's, it's our hard, some of our hardest things are, God, why don't you move in this way? Why didn't this happen? Why did it happen in that situation and not this one? And those can be such incredibly difficult moments. And this is this final dramatic scene in most miracles, like when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, he dismisses everybody from the room, tells them she's only sleeping, raises her, and then is kind of like, hey, don't tell anybody about this. This one, he has an entire crowd all gathering around him in this dramatic scene. And I think here we're actually kind of given in this last little bit some of the reasons why Jesus waited two days. Because when you look back on a story with hindsight, you often can see these. He, I, I think in this, he was praying for Lazarus. He was praying for his body, praying that it wouldn't decompose, praying that it would be intact when he got there and ready to be called back to life. Which is why this is so much more of a miracle. Like, think about this. She says, don't roll the stone away. There's going to be a really bad smell. They roll the stone away. Nothing said about a bad smell. And I think in that moment, Jesus is like, all right, my prayer during those two days has been answered. That his body would be in a, in, a, in a place where it can be raised back to life. And the only thing that's left is then for him to just kind of call out. The other thing is, it's just this entire miracle is so powerful Causing it to be four days after his death, there was a common Jewish belief that when you died, the soul would actually stay in close proximity to the body for three days to potentially go back into the body and and come back to life. But then after three days, the soul would move on. And, And so with this four days, you know, one day of travel to find Jesus which means that Lazarus probably died as soon as the messenger took off shortly after. Two days back, or two days waiting, one day travel there, and this it's been four days. And so this whole thing is just this dramatic scene of what Jesus is doing. And he, he, he looks up to God and says, God, thank you for hearing my prayer. Stones rolled away, there's nothing there. He says, thank you for hearing my prayer. And then he calls out to Lazarus. Now, obviously, this is going to shake an entire region. If someone dies, they have passed away for four days and they come back to life. Like, everybody's going to be talking about this. And, and this is where the religious leaders at this point, they say they can't let Jesus continue. Everyone's going to start to believe in him. Even more than that, the Romans are going to start to notice. And if the Romans notice, they're going to come in and not just kill Jesus, not just kill Jesus and his followers, they're going to they're gonna put an example out of him and they are going to crush any sense of a rebellion. And this is how they worked. We know that because in 70 AD, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Rome does this when there was a rebellion. And they destroy the entire temple. And so, I mean, this is a, this is a valid fear and concern that the religious leaders have. And so Caiaphas says, hey, it's better for one person to die than the entire nation. And so they start to plot at this moment for Jesus to die. 
And this is the inciting incident. There was tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, but it was manageable. He'd just disappear for a while, then come back. And kind of just this like poking them with a stick type of thing. Like it just was hurting their reputation. But the scale of this miracle was such that it it changed the dynamics of, of what was happening in a way that forced the hand of the religious leaders. And Jesus knew that this was going to be the result. When he made the decision to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus, he knows that this is the beginning of the end for him. From here on, the only road in front of him is the one that leads to the cross. And this whole story actually foreshadows that end result. If you, if you look at the original language of this story and of the crucifixion story, they purposely are using some of the same uh, phrasing, some of the same sentences, some of the same things that people are saying. But I think the biggest foreshadowing that we have here, John is a brilliant writer in, in all of this that he does. Um, he's highlighted specific things. But the biggest thing is this. Like this story is about Jesus essentially trading his life for someone else's. He's saying, I'm going to go and do this miracle, which is going to result in life for Lazarus. But this is the beginning of the end. This is, this is what's going to result in my death. And so this story is this beautiful foreshadowing of everything that's coming. Here's what I want to do as we kind of just bring this to an end. I want to pull out three things kind of from each one of these, these sections. We've already said this, danced around it, but I want to make it into some statements. Maybe you're taking notes, you want to write these down, um, and... and I'm going to guess that maybe one of these has already kind of been something that God's speaking to you on or, or maybe there's something else going on. But the first one is this, that, that as I read this story that I take away, God is moving in our lives even if it doesn't look the way that we expected. You might have a situation right now that you are praying about and you've been praying about forever. You might have a situation where you have no clue what the next step is. You have no clue what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and you're just saying, God, where are you in the midst of this? And I think at times we have to remind ourselves, we have to believe this, that, that God is, is working and moving in those situations. And for many of us, all we need to do to remind ourselves of this type of a statement is to look back in life at, at all the past times we've been saying, God, where are you? And now with hindsight, we look back and say, wow, it's amazing how God orchestrated that entire situation. Even though it was confusing and I was lost, and I had no idea what was going on. His ways are higher than our ways. His timing is not our timing. The second thing, I think we are invited to trade our if-only mindset for if Jesus is working, anything's possible. Instead of going to the if-only If only this had happened, if only that had happened, and and, and this is, hear me on this, this is not to minimize the situations that I know we have in this room and that people have gone through. And it doesn't mean that we can't question God. We have the entire book of Psalms that would state the opposite. David is constantly questioning God. Where are you? What is going on? I thought I was doing everything you told me to do. And everyone's trying to kill me. Come on, God, help a brother out. Like, what is happening here? The, the Psalms, nonstop, is David questioning, God, where are you? But what's beautiful is at the end of it, he always comes back and he says, God, but I trust you. I maybe can't see it yet, but I trust you. 
And, and that's what I think we need to, we need to trade our if only for, you know what, God, yeah, I have all my thoughts about this situation and how I think it should have happened, but I'm going to trust you and just say, if you're moving, if you're working, I'm going to trust you. And the last one is this. In the midst of our grief, Jesus doesn't leave us. He's grieving alongside of us. Now I know there's, there's a lot of different beliefs about, about different things and, and when things happen in life. Um, one of the most confusing things for us to understand is God's will. And I think God's will can be thrown around uh, to kind of say like, well, if something happened, it was God's will. Well, Scripture actually kind of, it doesn't say that. There's a lot of things that are happening that are not necessarily God's will. Why else would Jesus be saying, hey, you need to be praying, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live in a fallen world with sin and disease and death and destruction. That was not God's will. God had a plan and he allowed us to have our will to be part of this. And I've seen people, when a terrible situation happens, come up and just say, well, it was God's will. And for some people, depending on where they're at in this moment, that can be a comforting thing. For others, it isn't. I know for my wife, she lost her father uh, early. He had a heart attack. And I remember as we were processing through some of these things and at at the funeral and, and things like that, people coming up and being like, well, God just wanted to take him. You know, different things like this. Like statements that I think people are, are well-intentioned in making. But can be very hurtful when you are grieving in a massive way. Because it comes across as, as God has purposefully, intentionally inflicted this pain on you. And there are moments where, you know what, down the road, you may look back and say, hey, I can see how this was used. But what we do see is this. God will work things together for the good of those who love him. That, that's what we see in scripture. There can be a situation, maybe his hand was in it, maybe it wasn't completely in it. Maybe this was, this was the result of, of death and disease and all these things in our world. But God can take that situation and there can still be beautiful things that come out of it. That doesn't necessarily mean that God caused that sickness, that God caused that death. And it's a hard thing for us to kind of balance and figure out and walk with. And anyone who thinks that they have like kind of figured it out and is hanging on to it perfectly, uh, I mean, come help me. Because it's something that it's, I, I don't think it's a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed. There may not be an answer to some of these things. We just have to sit in that tension and balance it. So let's do this. Would you stand with me just across the room as we kind of bring this? Worship team, you guys can come. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response. We'll sing another song. We'll have prayer team that'll be around the room. Maybe you have something just going on in your life that you want prayer for, or maybe something today as we've been talking has been brought up and you feel like, okay, I want to to be able to focus on this. I, I want someone to pray with me. But before that, there's... There's, there's one just like big overarching thing in this story that I want us to finish with. Something from the beginning of the story that pulls this all together. And it's that, that goofy little statement that Jesus makes. 
about the daylight and the dark. He says, in the daylight, you can walk and you can see what you need to do. In the darkness, you're going you're gonna to stub your toe, you're going to trip, you're going to stumble, all these different things. And he just says that and then he's like, all right, let's go. And in that moment, he, he's trying to convey to the disciples, and maybe they got this. I don't know. I, I always sell them short and make them sound like a bunch of doofuses. But that's just because I am putting myself in their shoes, and I would be that doofus. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? Maybe they got this. But he's just saying, hey, listen, I, I am the light. If you walk with me, you may not always understand it, you may not know why we're going here, where we're going, what's going on in that moment. But if you walk with me, you're going to end up in the right spot. But if you try and blaze ahead in your own ambitions and with your own mindset, you're, you're going to stumble. If you try and pull logic into every single decision, I'm not coming against logic here, but if every single decision has to be a pros and cons list, it's my personality speaking, so I'm, I'm preaching myself here. And everything has to be what's the most logical thing to do. You are going to stumble. You're going to stumble. There's just going to be times where that is not where God is leading you. But if you, if you try to steer through these situations with, with your own understanding, you're, you're going to trip. When you stick close to Him, when you see the situation from His point of view, even if that means being confused as to the logic behind it, you're going to come out in the right place. And so here's just like a, a super simple statement, a very easy to understand statement, a very difficult to apply statement. We are called to follow Jesus, trusting him every step of the way. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it seems to be into the jaws of death, we will be walking in the light if we are with him. It's basic. It's simple. It is anything but easy. And I think there are people in the room that, that today you are, you're in a spot, you feel like you're in the dark. Understand the dark doesn't necessarily the darkness and the light is not necessarily a place and you need to move from the darkness to the light. The light is a person. And you need to allow that person to come into the darkness where you are. And then you just begin to walk with him. Pastor Aaron, would you come and just kind of move us into a time of response here as we come to an end? I want to invite the prayer teams to come up front. Um, like Pastor Josiah said, there's a couple ways that we can respond this morning. And so we have, we're going to have prayer teams up here. Uh, we also have communion in the back. Maybe that's something that you want to just remember what he's done for you. But I just, I want to pray for us, right? I need prayer for this. And so, Father God, this morning, help us to take this incredibly simple statement and begin to live it out. It is not going to be easy. It is, it is going to be incredibly difficult to move ourselves from maybe a different way of thinking and a different way of approaching you, but God, help us to just be willing to allow you to move into our space and allow you the time and, and to, to work in and through us. 
God, in that waiting period, help us, give us the patience and the endurance and the strength as you work and transform our lives to give us a different perspective and a different vantage point of what is going on in our lives. God, each one of us here is struggling with something different when when it comes to life and in this world. And so, God, I pray that you would move in, your Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way into our lives. God, allow us to maybe stand still and sit there and wait for you to move. God, help us in that moment of, of waiting to seek. Like, we're not just sitting expecting this big thing to happen, but God, we are intentionally seeking you out in that moment as well. God, thank you for this, this lesson that we can so easily miss from a story that some of us have heard so many times, maybe we've heard it for the first time. But God, help us to walk out of here different, with a different perspective, seeking you out different, and and just trusting you. God, we thank you for this time. Help us to respond to you this morning.